I like him because they they talk to everybody. They speak to everybody. You know what I'm saying? Like from here to Portland. You mean Portland, Maine, or Portland, Oregon? Man, for both of them, for that matter. It's all love. It's all love. They say you are what you eat, so I strive to eat healthy. My goal in life is not to be rich or wealthy, cause true wealth comes from good health and wise ways. We got to start taking better care of ourselves. They say you are what you eat, so I strive to eat healthy. My goal in life is not to be rich or wealthy, cause true wealth comes from good health and wise ways. We got to start taking better care of ourselves. Be healthy, y'all. Hello friends, today we have a reading from Margaret T. Hodgson, the Viking Fun Publication Anthropology, number 18, Change and History, published in New York, 1952. This was a gift from A.M. Tauser, who, those in the know, will understand as the father of modern anthropological studies. A gift of him on the 2nd of March to the Peabody Museum of American Archaeology and Ethnology. But for some reason, this was thrown out of the Harvard Library, where your boy found it. And this gives clear instructions and further details how we are going to establish, cement, and prevent the destruction and loss of the world culture of hip-hop. The first, the introduction, the problem of change in the social studies, which is exactly what is happening as I speak. Man must be reckoned as unique among his animal brethren on many counts. He is the most ubiquitous of creatures. Even to the parts of the earth where he cannot long remain, he makes his way. He alone enjoys the power of speech and the capacity for conceptual thought. With some discernment of his singularity, he calls himself the laughing animal and the animal with the musket. He is preemptively a tool maker and a tool user. Therefore, it is difficult indeed to find any human interest that is not, in some sense, exclusively human. He's talking about anthropology, culture. Not least among these is a quest for order in social change. So, what was the advancement? What was the progression like? A concern arising from anxious awareness of an uncertain world in which ancient folkways often give way to strange and unsettling innovations. Yet burdened as he is with this bewildering and inescapable problem, man is uniquely outfitted for its solution. Since memory is the cardinal trait of the human mentality, he is a historical animal. He is the one creature among all others who possesses a changing past, possesses also in history the means for its recovery and contemplation, whether the question be cast in terms of the arts, social institutions, technologies, ideas, philosophies, histories, scientists and historians may take recourse to dated record of changes for innovations. Unlike many students of the natural world, humanists are not dependent upon their knowledge of the present as the only clue to the past. The whole book may be taken down from the shelves, consulted chapter by chapter, period by period, event by event, what therefore they do with the dated record, or what they cannot do or fail to do with man's unmatched access to past experience, measures their success or failure in solving their problems. 
They are limited, yes, but only by the regional and temporal boundaries of dated human history. We are limited only by the regional and temporal bounds of our dated human history. The fact that for some people it is fuller and longer than others, or by their preconceptions concerning the natural events and the ways of the vast accumulation of dated material may be properly utilized in humanistic inquiry. Take Britain, for example, as one of the major historical areas and the problem of technological change in Britain. If the records be consulted, it may be established without undue effort that the inhabitants of the island in the years preceding the Norman Conquest were an agricultural and pastoral people, <laughs> give me a break, living in many rural communities with few small towns. With the passage of years, however, an occasional villager townsman forsook the fields and shiprons for other occasions. Here, one began to make cloth for the market. There, another one mined tin, lead, or iron. Quote, sometime in the reign of John, end quote, we are told, quote, Ralph de Bolebeck drew the attention of his neighbors, dot, 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 by erecting forges on Stanfield Moor, end quote, near Levisham. In 1225, Lawrence Vitrarius acquired land in Pickhurst, one mile from Chittingfold, and began making bracken glass for the first time. For the year 1161, there is an allusion to an ironworks in Kimberworth, owned by the monks of Kirkstead Abbey. In 1180, the first bookbinder is mentioned in the town of Oxford, and in 1667, the first type founding was successfully carried out, possibly by a Dutchman named Peter Walpergen. In 1652, the presence of coal mining is indicated by the Ashton and Makerfield by the place and name of Coal Pits, and during the same century, Darwin was known for the hand weaving of checked cotton clothes carried on in the homes of the yeoman and husbandmen. Coarse burrow cloth was made in Winchester before the conquest, but it is strongly suggested that in the 12th century, foreign weavers of greater skill introduced the making of chalons or a fabric that took its name from chalons sur marne these few statements chosen at random and recalling in each instance the appearance of a new craft on a specific site at a specific date could be multiplied by the thousand in the annals of british economic history but few or large in number they confirm the localization of changes of the industrial arts few or large and varying in time and place they form a category of recurrent, dated innovations indicating changes in technology, and in their final sum reveal the replacement of a rural condition by an industrialized economy. When confronted with the evidence of this vast drama of technological transformation, the onlooker is disposed to impute to British character a singular plasticity, and to British culture an unusual receptivity to change. And this quality was no doubt present. It appears in high relief when Britain, with its changing economic scene, is contrasted with the persistent pastoralism of the Bedouin tribes. With the long-sustained resistance to industrialization of the American Indians, or the Japanese, or the Russians, and with the adherence of certain other peoples to husbandry since the beginning of history. 
It is upheld in the more recent past by Britain's unquestioned priority in industrial advancement. I am questioning that authority right now, buddy. And viewed down, the long perspective of elapsed time is reaffirmed by the series of prehistoric epochs and technological periods in Britain commonly known as the Stone, Bronze, and Iron Ages. But nothing in the day-to-day routine of the common life offers a more massive resistance to innovation than husbandry. Changes in tools or in the techniques of fabricating the objects used by man have not occurred everywhere in Britain, nor did the technological new affect every hamlet, village, and town alike. In studying the distributions of prehistoric skills, archaeologists discern in antiquity the presence of provinces, of replacement set in the midst of larger areas in which no replacement has been noted. When historians review the dated past, they concede that industrialization marked by the acceptance of the new handicrafts has not been exhibited by all Britons at all times, by all Britons at some times, not even by some Britons at all times. In outlying regions, or even near modern spinning mills in which the latest machinery was employed, the rudest of all known methods of spinning were still being carried out not long ago, and with the assistance of roughly worked stone implements similar to those found in museum collections of antiquities, many quiet backwaters still exist where farming folk live in life of their forefathers, almost untouched by the machine. The smoking chimneys of Manchester and its teeming industrial satellites are not only surrounded by green fields, but by villages composed today, as they were before the conquest, of small groups of husbandmen. There are many communities in which technological changes began as early as the 12th century. There are others in which ancient economy has remained unaltered until the reign of Henry VIII or Queen Victoria. In other words, evidence from every quarter presents technological innovation as a phenomenon that has taken place only at certain times and in certain places, although the dated events which constitute the evidence of industrial advancement are marked by their frequency, recurrence, and similarity. They exhibit Indubitable differences in temporal and spatial distribution. Bah! Feel that. The dated record and the problem of order. The problem that we must face in hip-hop. Where then, during the long British past, have technological changes taken place? Among what groups and what communities? At what sites, at what dates have folks displayed these technological initiatives? What geographical differences in the acceptance of new handicrafts are to, be observed, are to be observed between historic Britons and their prehistoric forebears, or among Britons at different historical periods? What were the conditions that made one group ready and eager to accept the innovations, whereas another chose to continue its old ways? And finally, how are answers to these simple questions of where and when, which lie at the basis of understanding of technological change, to be obtained. Although it is desirable, ultimately, to push on far beyond a limited factual horizon and to elicit the process or processes of industrial advancement, this essential consummation is realizable only by an initial appeal to the British record. 
It is contingent first upon determining the dates and sites of innovations, and second, when that is complete, upon comparison of the historical experiences of innovation accepting communities. Contributions to the social studies. Once the problem of technological innovation is formulated in these fundamental temporal and spatial terms, and the issue of procedure is raised, the inquirer is faced with a contemporary intellectual situation notable for its adherence to methodological tradition or divided councils, and for the absence of substantial accomplishment. Although social scientists in their several fields profess the same aims and try to understand how societies or cultures operate and why or how cultures undergo change, the social studies cover the range of man's activities in a spotty and somewhat casual fashion. And with the methodological practice sharply divided on the issue of the relevance of dated material, although the question is put are legitimately applicable to all periods of human past, they or their like have been asked by only two groups of investigators, the anthropologists and the archaeologists, or by those who are least well provided with the historical means for obtaining answers. Although nature, including human cultural activity, exhibits, even to the most skeptical, approximate uniformities, repeated occasions, repeated associations and recurrent sequences or something of an equivalent character, neither anthropologists, archaeologists, historians, sociologists, nor economists are prepared to say whether an invention, a discovery, or a new trait can be incorporated into a culture with difficulty or with ease. Differences in types of documentation, and especially the scientific value imputed to them, have affected the formidable cleavage in the study of social change. In the absence of methodological agreement and unified attack, no one is prepared to state how new traits, industrial or otherwise, have infiltrated, permeated, or saturated any society. No one knows whether innovation has proceeded by painful jerks and uprootings or has been easy and undisturbing. Think about that. The only two fields in which we are asking where did humans start? What what we're asking the real deep questions. What does it mean to be human? What is a human? And we no one knows. No one knows. Let's take a look deeper into anthropology. Insofar as anthropology is concerned, the state of affairs is not the outcome of a lack of interest in technological innovation, nor a failure to appreciate the insight bestowed upon investigation by the possession of dated documentation. Quite the contrary. Anthropology, as viewed by many anthropologists, is the science of man. Its full task is nothing less than this, to observe and record, to classify and interpret, all of the activities of all of the varieties of the species of living being. It studies man as he occurs at all known times. It studies him in all parts of the world. It studies him body and soul together. R.R. Marat, Anthropology, New York, 1912, page 7. Nevertheless, in recent practice, inquiry has been largely restricted to one category of human subject, or to those who have lived 
outside the stream of European culture history and are designated as primitive, non-literate, uncivilized, or backward. The purpose of the investigator, to which all others are subordinated, is to describe such cultures in order to rescue from threatened oblivion in the activities of the fast-disappearing savage. To this end, facts have been assembled and artifacts collected in, until the store of information is all but overwhelming. The study of the material of non-literate people has not only been one of the most permanent interests of anthropological inquiry, it has been one of the most important and rewarding for knowledge of what primitive man makes, how he makes it, and for what purpose it is made has often been a clue to the solution of refractory problems in social organization, religious concepts, and aesthetic values. But long ago it became apparent that description of implements, weapons, and utensils, of the preparation and weaving of fibers, of wood carving and metalworking, no matter how meticulous and complete, was not enough. Ethnologists began to realize that the range of variation in the tools and techniques of savage workmanship, like that among the more advanced peoples, could be best understood if it were recognized as the outcome of changes in pastime and submitted to historical investigation. Here, however, their best efforts were hampered by the absence of dated records. Though referring to the technologies of hundreds or perhaps thousands of backwards groups, backwards groups, museum collections of implements and fabricated objects were without historical depth. It was and is impossible to say for even one primitive culture that at such and such a place or at such and such a date, a specific person introduced a new tool, a new product, or a new technique. In so far as technological innovations among uncivilized people were at issue for anthropological inquiry, there are answers to the question of where, but no simple answers to the question of when. According to one of the most persistently debated points in ethnological literature has been the question of how, through the use of analogy or inference to reconstruct the, quote, histories, end quote, of peoples for whom no dated evidence is available. So if you don't make your history, Europe and Britain makes your history. Accordingly, one of the most persistently debated points in ethnological literature has been the question of how, through the use of analogy or inference, to reconstruct the histories of people for whom no dated evidence is available, or how to deal with the problem of change in cultures for which the usual indications, the recorded and dated statements of the acceptance of new traits, are lacking. For people who have no written documents of any kind, and whose oral traditions are blended with features obviously mythical in character, the anthropologist has to have devised a special discipline to distinguish the degree of their historicity, or indeed, in many cases, decide whether they have any historical value whatever. Uh, 9. W.H.R. Rivers, History and Ethnology, History, Volume 5, 1920, page 67. The anthropologist's problem of historical reconstruction has been metaphorically defined as the translation of two-dimensional photographic picture of reality into the three-dimensional picture of which lies back of it, or the reading of time perspective into the flat surface of photography. 
10. E. Sapper, The Time Perspective in Aboriginal American Culture, A Study of Method, Ottawa, 1916, page 2. Attempts to meet this difficulty have led to the elaboration of two procedures, both of which have been used in natural history in the presence of a similar difficulty. One school of thought has adopted an a priori theory of change and employs a so-called, quote, comparative, end quote, or, quote, historical method, end quote, for the reconstruction of conjectural, hypothetical, developmental, evolutionary, or natural histories of culture. Another, the diffusionist school, rejects developmentalism and its sustaining procedure. Its members, like many botanists and zoologists, when confronted with dateless organic phenomena, turn first to the collection and mapping of facts of trait distribution, and then, aided by assumptions concerning the correlation of geographical position with age, they formulate conclusions with reference to the hypothetical time sequence of traits. This derivation of chronological relationships from a cartographical form of inquiry has led to many important conclusions in anthropology, but when all is said and done, the results of the procedure refer to non-literate people only. So far, the studies have contributed little that can be employed directly in the study of dated technological changes during the historical period or on a historical area such as that of England. Archaeology In the situation of archaeology, in some respects, is similar to which prevails in anthropology. That is to say, both prehistoric and primitive man have existed in a non-literate condition and have had no historians or record keepers. The only materials available to the archaeologists are the works of man, the bone, stone, bronze, and iron tools made by him. The weapons, ornaments, and household utensils fashioned by these tools. The dwellings and structures designed for the living and the dead. For the defense and all the oddments and dejecta left behind as memoranda of antiquity. At first sight, all that is given to the student of prehistoric technological change is a hopelessly miscellaneous assortment of fragments unaccompanied by the names of fabricators and barren of dates. 12. On the dateability of the Bronze Age in some regions, see V. Gordon Child, Archaeological Ages and Technological Stages, Journal of the Royal Anthropological Institute, Volume 74, 1944, page 9. Now here's the meat and potatoes. It is notable, therefore, that the initial step in bringing these unpromising materials into the purview of historical investigation was their exhaustive collection, which was also the first step in the use of scientific method. They were assembled by antiquaries in museums, they were listed in catalogs, and they were entered in inventories accompanied by records of the sites of their modern discovery and ancient use. Clearly, the unremitting industry required for the completion of this task requires no emphasis. An amount of material has been accumulated in almost every center of ancient human occupation, quote, calculated to terrify the stoutest heart, end quote.
The magnitude of this corpus material thus made available for study is suggested by the fact that a recently completed card index of all Bronze Age tools and weapons found in England and Wales contain 20,000 items. A large number, but a mere fraction nonetheless, of all the memorials of the ancient Britons. 13. Stuart Pigart, the, Pro the Progress of Early Man, London, 1935, page 16. Long before the collection had reached its present highly organized form, however, and before the sites of the assembled artifacts had been adequately mapped, the second step in scientific procedure was invoked. From geology, another historical science confronted with dates with a dateless and refractory materials. Prehistorians learned the utility of classification. This classification in typology, in chronological terms, was achieved first by the Danish archaeologist Thompson on the basis of the materials used by early man in the making of his weapons and implements, especially cutting tools, such as axes and knives, and scratching the record. On this criterion, he divided his museum specimens into three groups, and with later stratigraphical evidence, demonstrated that they represented a chronological succession of three technological periods. First, the Stone Age was described when men used stone for the manufacture of their tools and their weapons, but knew no metal. The second, the Bronze Age, was one in which he used metal, but only copper and bronze, and had not yet learned the use of iron. In the Third Age, the Age of Iron, was one in that metal was known and used. 14. Glen E. Daniel, The Three Stages, Three Ages, An Essay in Archaeological Method, Cambridge, England, 1943, page 89-1617. In other words, as Carl Pearson remarked concerning the social studies, it is peculiarly a in prehistoric history that we are, for the first time, being best able to apply the scientific method. Carl Pearson, The Grammar of Science, 1937. Thompson's arrangement of artifacts not only pushed back the industrial history of mankind by thousands of years, it converted the antiquarian collector into a scientist as well as a historian. The sequence of these three ages, tracing the course of technological change in high antiquity, was reconstructed by recognizing the repetitive appearance in region after region of the same classes of artifacts or the same classes of events. 16. For discussion of class and events, see F.J. Taggart, Roman China, A Study of Historical Correlations, Berkeley, 1939, A Causation of Historical Events, Journal of, History, Journal of the History of Ideas, Volume 3, 1942, page 3 through 11. In this way, the archaeologist, like the paleontologist, has built up an elaborate structure consisting of the classification of types arranged in chronological sequence. By thinking in types or classes instead of dates or years, he has persuaded the products of human skill to yield temporal depth. Let me read that again. In this way, the archaeologist, like the paleontologist, has built up an elaborate structure consisting of the classification of types arranged in chronological sequence. By thinking in types or classes instead of dates or years, he
he has persuaded these products of human skill to yield temporal depth. And in yielding temporal depth, they have presented him with three economic, technological, or broadly social conditions, which can be examined as the outcome of a process of economic or technological change. When in due course the sites of these three conditions were finally submitted to geographical distribution, the maps revealed not only the locations of innovations in the three ages and the areas which the transformation from age to age took place, but also the localization of prehistoric technological plasticity, or the regions in which the process of change had occurred could therefore further be investigated. So they're looking for something, and whatever they see that they did not look for, they look past. They are not aware of it. They lack the awareness. Prehistoric Britain. The archaeological study of prehistoric Britain has reached a number of significant results, and in contrast with the anthropological study of non-literate peoples, find answers to the simplest questions of where and when, which can definitely be stated. In the Neolithic or Stone Age in Britain, technological plasticity was confined. With the exception of one small but dense area in the Yorkshire Wolds, largely to lowland and southern England, or to settlements lying south of a line drawn from the Bristol Channel to the Humber Estuary. Within this southern region, two concentrations of finds appear, one on Salisbury Plain and the other on Cotswolds. Bronze Age settlements, or the recurring sites where finds of artifacts made of this metal indicate their local fabrication or use, show a wider and denser dispersion. They not only appear south of the Bristol-Humber line on the Salisbury and Somerset Plains, in East Anglia, South Devon, Cornwall, in the Vale of Evesham, and in the valleys of Severn, the Lower Thames, but also north of the line of Yorkshire Wolds and Coast, in Northrumbia, Lancashire, Cheshire, and the Pennine Highlands, and in the Valley of the Lower Tyne. But in the Iron Age, the map of massed finds indicates a geographical contraction of innovating activity. The area of Salisbury Plain is still marked by several dense clusters, and East Anglia is still a region of change. In the area north of the Bristol Humber Line, however, there are few sites of innovation. The folks there who had widely adopted bronze tools evidently continued to use them. Even though their neighbors to the south had taken advantage of a superior metal, prehistoric inquiry in Britain has thus revealed by collection, classification, and geographical distribution that technological changes were restricted to certain regions, zones, or provinces. It is by no means implied that archaeologists, with all of their concentration on tools and handicrafts, all of their skillful use of scientific procedures, have obtained insight into the minutiae of prehistoric technological changes. Although they have demonstrated the existence of a transition from one industrial age to others, and even divided these ages into sub-ages, each one of these in great length is in years. Each one is in great length in years. Nor has the documentation of prehistory composed at as nor has the documentation of prehistory composed as it is of 
quote, dumb relics and monuments, end quote, so pyramids, dumb relics and monuments, revealed the names of prehistoric chieftains or the issues of individual accomplishments in peace or war, silence and shrouds the alert craftsmen who first invented the used bronze tools and the individual self-assertion which led later to the substitution of iron. There are no Ralph de Bolebecs or Lawrences of Normandy in the, annal in the annals of prehistoric England. Nevertheless, archaeology is primarily concerned not with the tools or the products of tools alone, but with the people who made them and used them. If it is restricted to the study of artifacts, it is a means to an end, and the end is us. The end is mankind. The purpose of employing the scientific procedure of collection, classification, mapping, correlation is an ultimate understanding of the process involved in human advancements. History. When, however, the historian takes up the tale where it is left by prehistory, or when sociologists and economists and economists deal with the problem of change in material culture, their incomparable wealth of dated material is not turned to account. Dated events indicating changes are not given the same evidential value as archaeological artifacts. Though far more circumstantial than testimony wrung from mute objects, they are not submitted to geographical or distributional analysis. Historians and their colleagues in sociology and economics not only fail to ask the question which call for collection, classification, distribution, but in affirming the uniqueness of events, their dissimilarity and non-recurrence. They rule out the past elementary scientific procedures as irrelevant in the investigation of man's dated past. The basic assumption upon which the historian conducts his investigations may be said to be two in number. He assumes first that the present can be best understood if regarded as the outcome of dated past happenings in the past time and if the past be recovered. He assumes second that the recovered past can be best apprehended if it be thought of in generic terms. I'm sorry. He assumes second that the recovered past can be best apprehended if it be thought of in genetic terms and presented in narrative form, but inventing and attempting to render the dated past intelligible, the historian makes no effort to recover the totality of what has happened. In accordance with the canons of history writing, he, quote, utilizes only a section of all that has actually occurred, end quote so arranged as to convey to the reader what the individual historian considers of importance in a period or a series of occurrences. 21, Frederick Taggart, The Theory of History, Berkeley, 1925, page 55. It follows, therefore, that no, 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 no history, whether it be national or universal, political, economic, or social, contains a catalog of every dated happening technological changes, for example. Dated testimony may declare that in the reign of John, Ralph de Bolivec erected a forge on Stanfield Moor, that Lawrence Vitrius in 1225 made bracken glass and pickers, that the first bookbinder began work in Oxford in 18, or 1180, and that the first type founding in England was successfully carried out in the same town in 1667. 
Economic historians may elect to embody all of these events in their histories of ironworking or glassmaking or printing or in their industrial histories of England. Local historians may refer to them in their reconstruction of the histories of Yorkshire, Surrey, and Oxfordshire. General historians may endow these events with special significance and mention them in the course of recounting the history of the English people. But even so, their inclusion of anyone or all of the branches of narrative history is the result of selection on the part of the historian and is based upon his private judgment. Therefore, there is no assurance that before making the selection, the individual historian has himself sifted and sorted all the data. Nor is he required by any generally accepted code of scientific exactness to state what he has excluded or the criteria of exclusion. The term scientific method is frequently used by historiographers, but it is applied to the procedure for authenticating documents, detecting forgeries, establishing dates, and similar matters. Many declare that the use of such critical techniques result in scientific history. Like the natural scientists, historians make every effort to secure correct facts. But owning to a traditional adherence to the assumption of the uniqueness of dated events, the term, quote, critical, end quote, or, quote, scientific, end quote, history does not imply exhaustive collection or the use of scientific method. In terms of taxonomic or distributive procedures, after the dated facts have been authenticated, it applies only to the procedure followed in the ascertainment of the particularly dated facts. Now listen up to this part. Although more than one historian has acknowledged that in record of human experience, events often repeat themselves and consider it, quote, likely that they should repeat one another, end quote, and that's 22, Edward A. Freeman, The Methods of Historical Study, London, 1886. The narrative historian functions in a universe of supposedly non-recurrent happenings. He reproduces its history in a series of episodes, which presumably have occurred all and once and for all. The possibility that an event might be unique and therefore incomparable in one aspect, but repetitive a member of a class, a comparable in another, and comparable in another, has seldom been recognized and little discussed. He reproduces its history in a series of episodes which presumably have occurred once and for all. The possibility that an event may be unique and therefore incomparable in one aspect, but repetitive, a member of a class, and comparable in another, has seldom been recognized and little discussed. The fact that the iron forges and the glass furnaces were set up in two different localities by two different persons, the fact that they were set up at different times and under different local circumstances from possibly differing motives and to produce different commodities have served in their variety to hide the essential likeness of the two events as dated innovation. They, and a very large number of other dated technological changes, have not been recognized as belonging to a single, but a very large category of similar happenings.
consequentially, the making of an inventory of like dated occurrences paralleling its completeness, the archaeologist's assemblage of undated types of documentation forms no part of traditional historiography. Although archaeologists and anthropologists deplore their poverty in dated material and have been compelled to adopt various expedients to overcome it, historians are either unconscious of their riches or use them in only one way, the construction of narratives. Although it is only through the examination of all the evidences of the appearances of new that inquire the hope of grasping where and when human beings have altered their ways of life and livelihood during the historical period. These events have not been collected, much less examined as a collection. For the same reason, they have not been submitted as a category of dated innovations to classification and geographical distribution. The historian will agree that there is no hard and fast boundary between historic and prehistoric times. He will even give the stamp of approval to anthropological and archaeological procedures by accepting their conclusions, when it seems desirable to push back his own narrative onto undated epochs of antiquity. But their co-partnership in the historical enterprise ends. For the historical record, a type of inquiry unified with anthropology and archaeology in mind, and having as its objective the delineation of temporal and spatial similarities in the distribution of technological innovations has not been undertaken. For the historical period, a type of inquiry unified with anthropology and archaeology and method, and having its objective the delineation of temporal and spatial similarities in the, distribu in the distribution of technological innovations has not been undertaken. The possible division of the historical era into periods conceived as technological terms and extending the prehistoric sequence of technological, quote, ages has not been contemplated. Historians, both general and economic, are not only unprepared to state with any finality where and when in Britain or elsewhere the process of technological change has taken place, they are unequipped methodologically and theoretically to identify the possible common anecdotes of like events or the possibly uniform conditions under which repetitive social changes may have occurred. That was dense, I know, and I apologize. I don't really apologize, because you deserve it, and you needed it, so. Uh, but let's take a step back and translate that into some fucking language we can understand today, right? Because we don't talk like that. A lot of words in there you saw me trip up on. Well, basically, the dad of anthropology, the pop-up of the science of man is giving this to the most prestigious university in the world, you know, uh, Harvard, the one I'm currently looking at, uh, it gave them this in 1953, right? So this is after he's done a majority and basically, you know, a considerable amount of his work and advancement. He's made a name for himself, all that jazz. And then he's looking back, and he's like, hey, buddy, 
you know, check out this book. This is a gift I got to give you. Change in history. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Hip-hop. He had to hip-hop right back. Hip-hop right back over to Cambridge, to, to, to Harvard, and give him this. And I must include that this copy actually has notes in it, which I can only guess are from A.M. Tauser himself. And I'm working on deciphering them, but I do see on the first page, Changes in History, Margaret T. Hodgen, the H, is underlined twice. Now, what could the significance of that be? And might I mention the ending, I'm not sure, this book, dot, 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 it was ripped off. I'll post a page of it to my Instagram, but it also comes with these very, very insightful maps. But basically, imagine, imagine this. You are in, you're a little kid, you're a little boy, and someone comes up to you and says, hey, 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 you seen a pedophile? And you go, what? I don't even, no, I'm playing baseball, what is that? They go, oh, it's this, um, it's this gross, fearful monster that's going to, that's going to ruin you, worse than kill you. All right, well, see you. Let me know if you see one. What do you, what do you do? You're on the lookout for the rest of your life. What the fuck was he doing? What? What? What is there out there? And that's what, again, another good way to put it. Hey, have you seen this new movie? Oh, no, I haven't. <gasps> you haven't seen the Titanic? <gasps> Dude, oh my God. <sighs> That is a representation of the gathering of historical information done by the work at Oxfordshire. Since Oxfordshire and book binding was supposedly invented by them. But as we can see right here from the father, the science of man, the, the true and essential scientific method is recording and then reevaluating. That's it, right? The hip and the hop. Truly. He sees that these epochs and these ages that we have, uh, what is the word for it? Stupidly. I would say retardedly, but I know that's going to be. Uh, offensive to some people, but I truly mean it, not in a offensive way, but it is retarding. It's a retardant to the advancement. Retarsant, that's what it is, retarsant. It's a retarsant. Retrosential, or retrosential. It's, re it's a retrosensual idea to label these things to come up and say, hey, do you have this? Well, oh, when did you get it? Okay, well, they got it then, so they're a couple years behind us because we got it first. Well, they didn't even need it, so maybe they're ahead of you, pal. Do you ever think of that? Maybe they didn't move from this to the next one to the other because they were satisfied. 
they knew how to commit and be loyal and conscious and aware of every move and intention that they let affect their actions. And now let's switch over to a formal introduction of the three etymological differentiations. Now we look at the three different etymological subverts or retarsants, reticents of hip hop. By none other than the master teacher, KRS One. Possession, you can open your gospel to the first overstanding entitled Real Hip Hop. Turn to page 80. In between paragraphs 103 and 104, you will see the three natures of hip hop. Hip hop exists as three distinct natures. These natures come together to create the total hip hop experience. The first nature of hip-hop is hip-hop, spelled capital H, lowercase i, lowercase p, lowercase h, lowercase o, lowercase p. One word, hip-hop. It looks like hi-fop. But this hip-hop nature is our unique spirit, our unique collective consciousness, the creative force behind hip-hop's elements. Hip-hop is the name of our lifestyle and collective consciousness. The second nature of hip-hop is spelled capital H, lowercase i, lowercase p, space, capital H, lowercase o, lowercase p. This hip-hop is the creation and development of breaking, emceeing, Graffiti art, DJing, beatboxing, street fashion, street language, street knowledge, and street entrepreneurialism. It is what we call ourselves and our activity in the world. This hip-hop is the name of our culture. Finally, the third nature of hip-hop is lowercase h, lowercase i, lowercase p dash, lowercase h, lowercase o, and lowercase p. This hip-hop represents rap music product and those things and events associated with rap music entertainment. This hip-hop is a music genre. Now look at this. You have hip-hop one, hip-hop two, hip-hop three, the three natures of hip-hop. Hip-hop one 
is consciousness. Hip hop two is culture. Hip hop three is product. Hip hop culture is the name of our unique community of consciousness. Hip hop one is the spirit, which creates the hip hopper mind, which creates hip hop, the culture, the body, which then creates hip hop, the product, the expression. Hip hop one, the spirit, is born of God, the great spirit, the great event. It is the light of our world. Hip hop two, hip hop, is born of cultural syncretism, meaning the blending of different cultures to create a new culture. It is the combination and unity of several independent cultures creating a new heterogeneous culture. And finally, hip hop three, rap music product, is born of corporate business interests. It exists when the effects of conscious hip hop and cultural hip hop become tradable material products. He goes on to say that with these three etymological and lexin lexicon lexinic lexicological, you know, difference, variation, spelling, are very clear that hip-hop is not something that you deal with in your hands or you can hold or move around, but it is more of a mindset, a consciousness, an awareness. That's going to do it here for this edition of Farm to Table. And remember, it's all love. They say you are what you eat, so I strive to eat healthy. My goal in life is not to be rich or wealthy, because true wealth comes from good health and wise ways. We got to start taking better care of ourselves. They say you are what you eat, so I strive to eat healthy. My goal in life is not to be rich or wealthy, because true wealth comes from good health and wise ways. I like him because they, they talk to everybody, they speak to everybody, you know what I'm saying? Like, from here to Portland. You mean Portland, Maine, or Portland, Oregon? <laughs> Man, for both of them, for that matter. <laughs>